so we can move into our scripture reading. Uh, so that is going to be in Genesis 48, uh, verses 1 through 22, if you want to turn your Bibles there. Starting verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and the inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there were still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's son, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dimmed with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and he brought them near. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, Bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know, he, sh he also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my bow, with my sword, and with my bow. All right, good morning, guys. I usually start with, my name's Houston, but you've heard that a couple times already, so I don't know, I'll just roll into it, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad to be with you guys this morning. Uh, I, I feel really honored. Uh, I say this a lot, I think. Nate is very generous to me in the passages that he asked me to preach. I feel very honored to preach this passage uh, I know you guys have been going through Jacob's story for a long time now, and uh, this is like kind of one of the, pen, this is the penultimate one, literally, um, and, and it's in some ways one of the climaxes of Jacob's story, and I, I think that's uh, weird because it's just like him on his deathbed, right? But this is what I think is really interesting. The book of Hebrews 
Hebrews chapter 11, there's this whole section where the author of Hebrews talks about significant characters in the Old Testament. And he talks about their big moments of faith. And there's a lot of really dynamic, exciting things in that section. Like there's the, the part where Abraham is tested and he offers up Isaac. Do you remember that scene? Where there's, uh, where Moses and the Israelites, you know, the parting of the Red Sea and they walk across. Uh, and there, it talks about like people fighting lions. He talks about people going to war. He talks about justice and all these kinds of stuff. And then, interestingly, when he mentions Jacob, when he mentions Jacob's moment of faith in his life, he talks about this scene. He talks about this moment when Jacob is on his deathbed, talking to his son Joseph, and he blesses him. And that's strange, right? That's so strange. And I think it's because in this passage we see something that, we, that we've not really seen so far. We see that Jacob has changed. We see that after this whole story where Jacob has done, I mean, all kinds of wild stuff, we see that Jacob is different on his deathbed. And there are parts of the scene where, where I would think that Jacob is almost unrecognizable. <clears throat> I mean, here he's, he's generous, he's, he's happy, he's gentle, he's honest. And I mean, you guys, you guys have spent time in his story. You tell me, are these the words you would use to describe our guy Jacob? No, absolutely not, right? If you've tuned in for two weeks now, I'm sure you know the answer to that is no. This dude is... He's not the kind of guy you want to, like, invite to your parties or your things, right? Like, something's going to go really wrong, and it's going to be his fault. Jacob, Jacob is not a great guy, right? Spoiler alert, not a great guy. And, and this scene is wild because, again, we see that something's different here. Something has changed him. And Jacob says what changed him in, in verse 3 of our passage, 3 and 4. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you of a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So J Jacob says, God has blessed me. And, and now you've read the story, you know that like this journey Jacob has gone on, and you know that all of these things that God did for Jacob was not because he earned it. It was really in almost every single scenario in spite of Jacob, right? In spite of the messed up things he did, the ways he took advantage of people. In other words, we would say, that when Jacob starts this scene, he recounts God's grace to him. Jacob recounts all of the good things that God did for him, but he didn't deserve. And, and again, that's what we call grace. And so here on his deathbed, Jacob's reflecting. He's reflecting on this grace that God has given him. He's reflecting on his story. And what we're going to see is that here in his final moments, that something, like I've said, 
has happened. Something's happened to Jacob. He is someone different. He's transformed. He's transformed by God's grace. And so what we're going to do, really simply, is we're going to look at this scene, and we're going to see what we learn about Jacob. Specifically, what we learn about what a lifetime of God's grace can do to somebody. And so we're going to see that Jacob, here on his deathbed, has been affected. And that God's grace has done three things for him. God's grace has made him generous. God's grace has made him glad. And God's grace has made him honest. And again, if you, if you followed this journey, all three of those should be like lights in the back of our heads. Uh, are we talking about Jacob? Are you sure? <laughs> and here, in this final moments, finally we can say, yes, <laughs> this is what Jacob's like. So again, we're going to see how God's grace has made Jacob generous, how God's grace has made J- Jacob glad, and how God's grace has made Jacob honest. But first, let's pray. Lord, we pray, man, I just pray now for your grace. I pray as we open your word and just wrestle with uh, this picture of a life affected by your grace. I pray that you would speak to us today. I pray that you would have grace for us. God, I just, uh, yeah, I thank you for Redeemer. I thank you for the chance to be here. Thank you for these people. Um, Thank you for the sweet worship. And God, I, I, yeah, I just thank you so much for these graces that we get to experience. And Lord, I'm excited to see uh, I'm excited to see how Jacob's life has been transformed, and I'm excited to think about how our lives can also be transformed by your grace, God. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be glorifying to you, Lord, our God and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, okay. So first thing, uh, open your Bibles, Genesis 48. Let's read this first section again. I want to talk about how God's grace made Jacob generous. Okay? So verses 1 through 5, the, the opening part here. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. And so he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. And then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And this, pay attention to this part. And now for your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Okay, this is strange, right? This is weird. Already, this sounds like maybe like an overbearing grandparent who is like kidnapping his grandkids or something. Uh, And this is not how we hope that this nice redemptive story would start, right? But no, uh, what's actually happening here is something remarkable, something, something very sweet, there's a way to read this passage like Jacob is, is taking, but what we have to see is it's actually the opposite here. See, in this culture, in this time, 
When someone is on their deathbed, there's basically one thing on everybody's mind. Like that person, everyone's mind. And it's the blessing slash inheritance. So Jacob was rich. Like we know this. Jacob had land. Jacob had animals or livestock. Jacob had servants. And Jacob, importantly, had a big family. Now, if, if any of you have been around like a big wealthy family when a matriarch or a patriarch dies, like you know what this scene is like, right? It's like tense. Like money is going to change hands here. Everybody knows it. Nobody's really talking about it. It's awkward. It's tense. But like there's a, there's a charged energy in the room, right? And this is the scene. Because think about it. Jacob has 12 sons, 12 people to whom this inheritance needs to be divided. And keep in mind, at this time, when they would divvy up inheritance, it was not equal among the children. It was culturally not equal. So typically, the, the oldest would get like a double portion of what everyone else would get. Um, sometimes, you would see even more kind of favoring the oldest. So like the oldest would get double, maybe the second oldest would get less, third oldest less, fourth oldest less. You see, like, like it was very much a system that favored the oldest uh, legally, culturally. This was just the way it was done. It was just the way it was done. And so, despite that, most commentators agree that when Joseph comes here, He's looking for a blessing. He's looking for an inheritance, especially probably for his sons. And if you remember, if you remember the birth order from many passages ago, Joseph is not high up on the list. He's pretty far down. And so we would expect him to get not a good blessing, probably not much of one. But still, he's come here. He's come for something. He's come for something. And while this might not mean much for us, it's like in this culture, this would have been outrageous. This would have been scandalous. And the fact that Jacob is playing along, even more so, it would have been very problematic. Because this would require Jacob to, to divvy up his inheritance with people beyond just his kids. Now again, you think about that rich family. Imagine they start reading the will, and names that aren't the kids start popping in there, what's happening? People are going nuts, right? So that, like, that's what's going on. That's the context here. And so the question is, like, what's happening? Like, what, what would we say is happening here? Maybe a little favoritism. Maybe Jacob's still showing a little favoritism. But I think at the least what we could say is that Jacob is showing some generosity, this is, is uncharacteristic of him. I mean, think back through the story. How many times can you think of where Jacob gave something to someone and it didn't benefit him? Oh, wait. You know, it's like we'd be here all day. Or, or think about how many times did Jacob do something good when it wasn't obligated? Or <laughs> how many times did he do something and he wasn't just trying to save his own behind. You know, like, like he was selfish to the core. Like, like he was out for number one and number one only. 
And depending on how you read it, this could truly be the first generous moment of Jacob's life. See, this is the kind of generosity that brings more people into the blessing rather than limiting those who can receive it. The idea is to bless more rather than bless less. And this, friends, this is the result of God's grace. Only God's grace produces these kinds of things. I mean, I mean, think about it. I can say that, but you think back in your life to the people you know that are like Jacob. These people who, who have spent their whole lives chasing them and their interests. People who have spent their whole lives taking advantage of others to gain. People who have amassed wealth. These are not the kind of people who have just a sudden change of heart and give away as generously as they can. I mean, okay, here's a, here's a story. Do you guys, have you ever heard of uh, John Paul Getty? Does anyone know this? Okay, a couple people. Uh, they made a movie about this. Uh, John Paul Getty was a man uh, born late 1800s, lived to about the 70s. He was like the rich, one of the richest men in the world in the 60s and 70s. And uh, in 1973, John Paul Getty's grandson, John Paul Getty III, uh, was kidnapped in Rome. And he was kidnapped by this, like, mafia-type family that was known for being crazy and militant and kind of fanatical, right? And so they, they asked for a ransom from the Getty family of $17 million, yeah, knowing full well that Getty could afford it, right? And John Paul Getty said, no, <laughs> I will not pay it. And, and they hold his grandson for ransom for five months because he will not pay a dime to these people. And so it turns out uh, Getty's son, John Paul Getty Jr., the boy's dad, uh, has no money. He can't afford this. Uh, senior has all the money in the whole family, right? And so the, the, this group, they think, well, maybe he doesn't know that we mean business. And so they start sending threats, right? They send hair. Later they send an ear. It's gruesome, right? And, <laughs> and the whole time, Getty won't fold. In fact, the kidnappers fold first. And they lower the price to $3 million. Now, can you, can you imagine? <laughs> can you, any grandparents here or, or kids who, you know, like, can you imagine your grandparents haggling over your life? Getty famously said this. He famously said, uh, I've got 14 grandkids, and if I paid $17 million as a ransom for each of them, I wouldn't have any money left. The winner. <laughs> so in the end, the the yeah the the mafiosos lower the price to three million dollars, and Getty won't pay that. He will pay two point two million, because that is the maximum amount that you can claim as a uh, tax deduction. Exactly, as a tax write-off. And then he lent eight hundred thousand dollars to his son at interest, to pay the rest. 
despicable, right? Like, <laughs> despicable. And, and look, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Getty is a famous example of one of the most despicable people in, in history. Like, like, there's no doubt that everyone says, yeah, this dude is, is the quintessential, despicably wealthy person. But here's what, I, here, here's what I want us to see. If we're honest, what I, what I think we see in Getty is not that he is an impossible or an implausible character, but that he's an exaggerated one. In other words, what I mean is we know people who are like this to some degree, right? Like, like we know people who, sure, they, maybe they wouldn't go so far as Getty did. You know, up until the day that he died, he stood by his decisions so that he made it right. And, and unsurprisingly, he died alone and spiteful. But again, I, I think that we know people who are similar to this, right? And, and if we're honest, this is an exaggeration of a place that we can all imagine. And what we have to see is that, like, this is the kind of character that we're talking about when we talk about Jacob. And here on his deathbed, instead of, like Getty used to do, writing people out of his will in spite, Jacob's bringing people in. He's being generous. And this is the kind of thing that only happens when people are, are faced with something that shakes them to their core, something, something that makes them reconsider everything about themselves, something that makes them question what they believe and hold dear. And what we see in the story of Jacob is this, the kind of thing, this is the kind of thing that happens when someone experiences God's grace. And in Jacob's case, it took a long time, took a lot of encounters, right? But at the end still, like, we see God's grace has changed this man. He's more willing to bring people into the blessing. He's suddenly reoriented outward instead of inward. And again, that's, that's not guaranteed, even in old age. It's not guaranteed. And another thing that is not guaranteed Something really spectacular is when Jacob makes this change from bitter to glad, from self-absorbed to gentle. Uh, so flip back one chapter to 47. I think last week you were in chapter 35, right? So, so this is like uh, the part that happened in the uh, intermission between last week. Uh, when Joseph went to Egypt, you remember that whole story? It's a wild story, crazy. But there's a scene where Jacob is in front of Pharaoh. And, and Pharaoh is, eventually, is basically like evaluating, uh, does this family deserve my generosity? Do they, do they deserve my help? And so Jacob's making a case. And in uh, chapter 47, verses 8 and 9, Jacob is talking to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asks him this. Pharaoh asked Jacob, how many days are the years of your life? He says, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil 
have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. It's a long-winded way to say, Jacob said, I am 130 years old, and my days are few and evil. Now, I don't know about you, 130 does not seem like a short lifespan. But for Jacob, you know, he's thinking about his forefathers, and he says, my life was short. But what's more, what's more significant here is he describes his days as evil. Now, in the, literally, this would probably not hold the same harshness that we hear, but most basically, Jacob's saying, my life was bad. It was bad. I had a bad life. It was full of suffering. It was full of misfortune. He said, I have not lived as long as I wanted to, and I regret the days that I did live. This is the description of someone who at the end of their life, they look back, and their life is full of regret. Life was too short. They didn't get what they wanted. They didn't do what they intended. They did what they never meant to. This is the kind of bitterness that poisons people in their old age and, and, and ruins the last stretch of their life. I, uh, my first job in high school, I worked at a retirement home, and I worked in activities. So I played bingo, you know, do parties, socials, that whole, that whole deal. It was a blast. And, and what I found, in my experience, is that you could categorize every person in that home into two groups. And it wasn't uh, whether they were mentally aware or not. And, and it wasn't really like their, their physical health or not. In my experience, you could categorize people into whether they were bitter or sweet. And if, if you spent like extended time with a wide swath of older people, you know this. I'm seeing some firm head nods here. There, there's, something, there's something about the end of life, right? Where you could have had a life full of heartache, full of physical pain, full of suffering, and still be some of the sweetest people that I've ever met. <laughs> and then you would find people who were the healthiest, the most aware, they had, they had the good life on every measure, and they were so bitter, even to the end. And it seems like, from this passage in, in chapter 47, like Jacob falls into the ladder, right? Full of regret, full of despair. He's very sad, and he's miserable. And this, <laughs> this is the backdrop for our chapter, verses 8 and 11, 8 through 11. Read, read this with me. Verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children too. That's a sweet scene, isn't it? That's a sweet 
moment. Tell me, tell me that this isn't the picture of a man changed by grace. Almost unrecognizable from this man who one chapter before said, my life has been short and miserable. And he's on his deathbed, and he's not thinking all of a sudden about his regrets. He's not thinking about all of the things that he wished he'd accomplished, all the things he wished he hadn't done. Here in these final moments, he is a sweet grandpa holding his grandkids for the first time. He's kissing them. He's holding them close. That's a sweet moment. And what does he say to Joseph? He says, I didn't think I would get to see you again. And now God has let me see your children too. Tell me that this isn't the most tender picture of Jacob in his whole life. I mean, I don't know if I have to remind you, this is the man who was probably not there for his own children being born. Do you remember how many of his kids, his, his wife's plural, named alone? This is the, the, this is the guy who has been absent father of the year. But something is different. Something has changed. Now he's this sweet grandpa. And even in the next chapter, chapter 49, when Jacob is talking to all of his sons, you're going to see that it's, it's wild. He actually says some pretty positive things about most of them. He's encouraging. He says, he says you, you're going, to have, you're going to have children that are going to be mighty warriors. You, your children are going to know how to love life. He's, he's praising them. He's building them up much more equally than he'd done ever before. Friends, this kind of thing, this doesn't just happen, right? This doesn't just happen naturally in the world. This is another receipt of God's grace to Jacob. In particular, here, it's the grace of getting to see your son that you thought you lost again. So your grandkids you never knew you had. So we've seen two pictures, two pictures of God's grace to Jacob. And, and for me in my heart, very tender scenes. But here's what I think is important. We have to see that these two, I think they don't compare to this third one. Like, these first two are kind of pennies on the dollar to this big, dramatic third change. And it's this, that God has made Jacob honest. Do you remember what Jacob's name means? Do you remember he was born... And he's grabbed the heel of his brother, and immediately they say, can't trust this kid. And they call, they name him Jacob, which means like heel grabber, but, but like basically means cheater, right? Can you imagine the life of someone who at birth was named cheater? Like, you're going to live up to that, right? Like, there's no, you're going to live up to that. And he does. You've, you've read the stories. He lives up to the name cheater. There's no shortage of, of stories of Jacob tricking or manipulating. But I think what's probably the greatest example of this is when Jacob tricks his father Isaac into blessing him. You remember this story? Uh, Isaac, who clearly favors Esau, I mean says it all the time, uh, tells Esau, okay, go out, 
hunt some game, bring it back, make me a meal, and I'll bless you. So remember, this is inheritance, blessing, language. Isaac's on his deathbed. He can't see. And he tells Esau clearly, go, because I'm going to give you basically everything. And so Jacob and his mom, Rebecca, they conspire. And, and in a scene that must have been, like a, a plot that must have been written by a five-year-old, Jacob comes to his dad with a meal. And his plan is to the extent of putting a goat skin on his arm, putting on Esau's clothes, and saying something like, me Esau. And it's like, <laughs> and it works. I don't know. Again, this family is so messed up. But, but like in this scene, Jacob tricks his dad, right? You remember this? And it's wild because Isaac's like, man, you sound a lot like Jacob, but your hands are hairy. You must be Esau. And it's like, I don't know what that says about his view of Esau either, but it's bad all the way down. But, but you remember in this scene, like the whole point, the whole point is that Jacob manipulates and tricks and lies, blatantly lies to get his inheritance, to get Esau's inheritance. And this wasn't the first time that he's tricked Esau. If you remember, Esau comes back, and uh, he and Isaac kind of figure out what's happened, and, and they're just like screaming, you know, darn you, Jacob, you've done this. And, and Esau says something like, look, he's tricked me twice now. He's absolutely lived up to his name. And it's against this backdrop that we read this passage. Look, look at verses 12 through 20. Then Joseph removed them, his, his boys, from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them, Ephraim in his right hand, towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand, towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near to Israel. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the hand of Manasseh, crossing his arms, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, and it displeased him. And he took his father's hands and tried to move them. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But Jacob refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So I want us all to see here, there's a lot going on. What I want us all to see is a really clear lack of deceit. Yes, 
Jacob is blessing Ephraim over Manasseh. Yes, Joseph's not happy about that. It's not right. Remember, we talked about the birth order is very important, culturally, socially. And, and, and so Joseph, he tries to fix it. Do you see that scene? You know, Jacob's got his hands crossed like this, and Joseph says, no, 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 Dad. And he tries to put him back. And Jacob says, I know, I know. Manasseh's oldest, he should get the blessing, but Jacob's going to bless Ephraim over Manasseh. Ephraim is going to get a larger firstborn inheritance. And what we have to see is that, that here in this moment, it, it, it's an inversion of what's supposed to be, right? Like the, the firstborn should get the bigger blessing. We've talked about this. Legally, culturally, socially, this is the expectation, this is the norm. But Jacob inverts it. And what we see is that this is a pattern all throughout the Bible, right? Do you remember early on, Cain and Abel? Abel is the younger brother, but he's favored over Cain. Or you think about Abraham's boys, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is the firstborn, but Isaac gets the blessing. And, and again, with Jacob himself, same pattern. Esau is the firstborn, Jacob gets the blessing. And so, so Jacob is participating in this kind of thread of God's story. He's participating in a storyline. But there's something very distinctly different here. For one, like I said, it lacks the tricker we would expect. You know, there's no rugs on heads. There's no blind, you know, fooling somebody. It's, it's all out in the open. Jacob is very clear about what he's doing. Again, when, when Joseph says, no, Dad, not like this, Jacob, you see the gentleness. He's like, I, I know, son. I know. It needs to be this way. He's clearly aware of what he's doing. He's not hiding anything from Joseph. He's making it clear what he's doing. But this is not just new for Jacob. This is not just without deceit. See, I don't know if, you, if you've caught this. This is the first time in the storyline of the Bible where the inversion of the birth order does not come with significant trouble. I mean, think back to Cain and Abel's story. Abel gets blessed over Cain, and what happens? He kills him. Cain kills Abel. Or, or think back to Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac gets blessed, but do you remember that scene where Abraham and Sarah, they send Ishmael and his mother out in the wilderness to die. It's gruesome. Or <laughs> you think about Jacob's own story, where he tricks his dad, tricks his brother, takes advantage of them to get this blessing. And even with Jacob's own sons, you know, his oldest son wronged him horribly, and he cut him out. But here, here with Ephraim and Manasseh, we see the pattern again, but it's different. It's gentle. It's honest. It's not out of spite. It's not out of greed. It's not out of regret. It's just an unmerited blessing given to an undeserving child. 
Friends, that's the kind of effect that grace can have on a life. See, I want us all to see that, like, with this act, you could say that Jacob has broken a cycle that's been in his family for generations. I mean, to the first generation. A cycle of brokenness and sin, a cycle of family dysfunction, a cycle that he even participated in in his own lifetime. Do you know what that takes? Do you know what it takes to break those kinds of cycles? Do you have cycles like this in your family? Patterns of sin that, that run so far back in your family, you lose track. Things that, that your parents did to you, that their parents did to them, and that every generation say something like, I'm never going to do this. Do you know what it's like to suffer from these cycles? I'm sure that you do. And tell me, do these things just go away? No. They don't. It takes something really powerful to make these kinds of changes in people and in families. And friends, that is the kind of effect that God's grace can have on people. That's the kind of effect that God's grace can have on a life. And we've seen, we've seen this. We've seen this in Jacob's story. We looked at these three things. As we kind of near the end, I just want to encourage us to think, if this is what we've seen in Jacob's life, if these are the effects that grace has had on him, I wonder what the effects, what effects grace could have on us. You spent time in Jacob's story. You know the man that he was, and, and you've read this story with me. You've seen the ways that he's cheated, the ways he's connived. And friends, the way that God has blessed him, like despite of all that, <laughs> despite of himself. Now you've seen that Jacob was in the receiving lane of God's grace, and it was enough to transform him. And I want us to see that for all the grace that Jacob received, we receive that much more in Jesus. And, and here's what I mean. Think about when, when Jacob tricked Esau into giving up his birthright. Younger brother tricks the older brother. He basically coerces him, right? Do you remember that scene? Esau is starving. He's like, I'll do anything. And Jacob says, I'll give you this food if you give me everything. It's slimy. It's, it's awful. And Esau does it. But friends, because of Jesus, because of his life, death, and resurrection, here we have a picture where the older brother doesn't have to be tricked into giving the blessing to us. He does it willingly. He wants to. Or, or think about when, uh, during the story where Jacob thinks Esau is out to get him. And so he splits his whole traveling party in two. And he sends one part away from him, and he goes the other way. Do you know what he's hoping? He's hoping that if Esau comes upon the other party, he'll kill them instead of him. Terrible. 
But we don't have to do that. Jesus does that for us. He, he steps into this other place. He willingly goes out to his death. He chooses it. We don't have to trick him. We don't have to coerce him. We don't have to hope that it's him or me. He says, no, it's me. Or think about when Jacob tricks his father into blessing him. In Jesus, we don't have to trick the father into blessing us. They worked it out themselves. They chose this. They wanted to do this. Jesus came freely. And the list goes on. You go through Jacob's whole story, you can find case after case of how Jesus has shown us so much more grace than even Jacob had received. And so the question is, what effects should this have on our lives? You know, I think it's not, it's not exciting to talk about, like, the effects of grace on a long life. You know, it's like, if you guys are ever on, like, TikTok or YouTube, uh, do you get in your algorithm those, like, videos of the super dynamic, like, preachers on stage, and they're yelling, and people are, like, going nuts in the aisle, and it's, you know, it's a very exciting ordeal. And I think those are the kinds of things sometimes that we think this is the expression of God's grace. You know, sometimes it is. The Bible says that. But do you know what doesn't fit very well in a one-minute video? It's, it's the old age life of someone who's followed Jesus for a very long time. Have you ever spent time with older Christians who, who have been with Jesus for a while? I'm going to tell you that the evidences of grace are apparent. They're, they're very obvious. Things like men who, who have been transformed from abusive to present, compassionate, supportive husbands. People who come from generations of family dysfunction who finally break cycles. People who have trauma that they don't give on to their kids. I mean, stories of, of, of people who get freedom from addiction, stories of people who have forgiveness and restoration in their relationships, things that would have broken other marriages don't break theirs, and things like hard-hearted men and women who at the end of their lives are softened, softened by the spectacular grace of God, and they become generous, loving people. I've said it, I don't know how many times now. I'll say it again. These things are not naturally occurring in the world. These things are the result of God's grace on people's lives. So I want to encourage us with this. Uh, first of all, if you don't know Jesus, man, this is the kind of thing that he does. This kind of grace, this is his stock and trade. And uh, as the expression goes, offers on the table. It's yours. If you want to know more, find Nate, find me, find someone who looks like they know something and ask him about Jesus. I promise you, like, it's, it's life-changing. He's life-changing. And for those of us who do know Jesus, whether you've been following him short time, long time, I've got a two-parter for us, okay? First, I want to encourage us all to look back and think about the ways that we've seen 
Jesus change our lives. Uh, go back as far as you can to the beginning, as far back as you can remember, wherever that is. Uh, my wife, Kinsey, and I recently started a, uh, like a grace journal where we, we write down just good things God's done for us, things we're thankful for. We're not very far in it. We're not, you know, we're not super faithful at it, but like, it's been great. It's really wonderful to just have an account of just the good things God does. And I just want to encourage you, man, I don't know if that's what you need to do or just piece of paper and start writing. I want to encourage you to, to take an account of what God's done. And the second part, get with someone else and talk with them about it. Because here's the deal. When we share the graces that we've experienced with others, it's this weird space where suddenly it's like we can start to see graces that we hadn't recognized before, right? How many times have you sat with another believer and they're sharing something and they're like just praising God, I praise God this happened, like he was so good. And you're like, wow, yeah, that, that same thing happened to me. I didn't even think about that. It's a wonderful spot. It's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful place to, to be reminded of what God's done and to see new what he's done. And, and most importantly, it's the place where we just make a big deal about what God's done. It's like if, if there's anything we should do today, we should walk out of here making a big deal about what God's done in our lives, in, in Jacob's life, in each other's lives. My hope is that we can walk away from this with a greater awareness of God's grace, a greater awareness of the impact that that's had on our lives, and ultimately, that it would spark a hunger, and that we would just be hungry for God's grace. So would you pray with me? Lord, I just thank you again for your word. I thank you for the story of Jacob. <laughs> I thank you that uh, you care to use messed up guys like him. Uh, I thank you that you're not above using cheaters and liars and self-absorbed people because um, that's good news for me, God. And so, Lord, I just pray that uh, you'll help all of us to, to yeah, just make an account for the, the graces that we've received from you, that we can look back on our stories and see the ways that you've changed us. And uh, God, I pray that it'd be encouraging for us and that it'd be encouraging for each other. And God, I, I just pray that uh, it would be a, a taste, uh, a foretaste of what you've got planned for us, for Redeemer, for Madison, uh, and for the world, Lord. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.